Welcome to Medic Class Citizen HP. Each episode will feature someone who is a high performer in his or her field. In this series, we investigate the traits, characteristics, work ethic, and drive required to be a high performer. Our guests may or may not be within EMS, but in these conversations, we identify parallels of their success and the success of a high performing EMS professional. We hope these conversations will inspire you as much as they do us. All right, everybody, welcome to Medic Class Citizen HP. We're ready to get this uh, this series fired off and going. Our first conversation, our first episode, we had the opportunity to sit down with Chris Van Brink, who has an incredible story. When we talk about high performers and uh, folks who have achieved success through various traits, uh, you know, drive, grit, determination. Uh, this this gentleman has definitely seen a lot. And uh, thankfully, he has an EMS perspective as well because he is a current paramedic operating in North Carolina, both hospital and pre-hospital systems. And he is also a paramedic instructor as well. But before he started that years ago, Chris was actually a Green Beret in the U.S. Army where he led uh, different teams as an officer. And so we, he definitely has a leadership perspective that can uh, that has a lot to offer. We can definitely gleam a lot of a lot of information from his experience, both in the selection process um, and different you know stories where he's had to make decisions during battle. Um, Chris, from there, went to a program called GORUCK, which you know a lot of our listeners have probably participated in before. Um, and then he decided to go to paramedic school. So with all that to say, um, we hope you guys enjoy this. Chris is a great guy. He also has a project called Morphine and Mindfulness, uh, where he focuses on mental health of not only EMS providers, but also pro- public safety personnel, um, military members, and essentially anybody who's struggling with PTSD. Um, he utilizes the tools of yoga and mindfulness to bring peace and uh, to try to, you know, enrich the lives of others. So with all that being said, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. So Chris, uh, again, thanks. Thanks again for uh, joining us, man. It is really rare to run into an individual that uh, <laughs> that's achieved as much as you have. And that's kind of what this whole HP thing is about. Um, we really enjoy talking to, we're both fascinated by high performers. Um, Jake, Jason considers himself one. I know I'm not. So. <laughs> Only well, if you ask me. It's funny you say, cause I was like, I was looking back, I was going back on some episodes. That I listened to your guys's podcast and I was like, y'all have had some big names on here, man. Like Peter Antevy, you know, like Jason from, you know, fire department. Chronicles. Oh, Jason Patton, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I mean, like I'm, I am by no means a big name. So I, <laughs> I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Well, dude. And that's, uh, I, I kind of think that's what's so cool about, well, you're not a big name yet, but you <laughs> will be after this. I assure you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Every, everybody just opened up Spotify and wow. started flipping for a new, a new uh, podcast to listen to. <laughs> Idiots. But no, man, um, I really, I, I'm really excited to hear your whole story, but I think what you're doing with uh, morphine and mindfulness is really, really cool. And it's completely needed. It's 100% yeah. necessary and needed. So I appreciate that. Yeah. It's um, my, my path has been 
anything but linear that's for sure i mean i've kind of been all over the place for for a hot minute um i mean i i started you know way back in the day with with really kind of no intention of the military i mean my, my family is about as far away from the military as you could possibly imagine mm. growing up in california like i parents didn't serve i have no relatives that that serve like i just i literally someone handed me a book on a navy seal class when i was in high school and i was like that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go awesome. be a Navy SEAL. You know? <laughs> and it's like, and my parents, were, I mean, they were very much against it. You know, they were like, no, you know, don't go and you're going to die and you're going to go to Iraq and you get blown up and whatever. And yeah, especially around that time. Cause that's whenever, uh, yeah. was that right after nine 11 or. Yeah. So, I mean, I, let's see, I graduated in 2004 and yeah, I mean, everything kicked off in, in Oh one, you know? And, and so that was, it was definitely starting to ramp up and, I don't know. Like I, so I, I found the military. I mean, the re, I, I got into the military cause they ended up paying for college. So the compromise with my parents was like, Hey, look, you go to college cause you worked really hard in high school and then you can do the military thing. So I was like, all right, well, let's have the military pay for college and you can take all that money that you saved and go do something with it. And they're like, all right, that's pretty cool. Cause we need a new house. So <laughs> you know, like, it all, it all works out in the end. Right. Yeah. So did they believe you'd actually succeed or were they throwing that out um, there? It's like, I, uh, eh, just get this out of your system. So I don't, that's a good question. So I, I think to this day, I mean, like as their son, you know, they, like they wanted me to succeed, but I think maybe in the back of their mind, they're like, Oh, maybe he'll just realize like this wasn't for him. And he'll just, you know, give up and quit and try something else, you know, like, like you're saying, like, he'll just get it out of the system. But I mean, I ended up, it, it worked out well. I, um, I started off as an officer an infantry officer, um, after I got my commission after college, uh, did you go then, to a, uh, a military academy or anything? No, no, no. I went to a, uh, just a four-year institution. I was an ROTC scholarship. Gotcha. Um, so you went to OCS just, uh, just right after graduation or how was that story? Yeah. So it, the way we're, so you're like, you do all your officer training, like as you're in college. So, you know, when you graduate, you get your commission and then in between your, your junior and senior year, you kind of spend a little bit of time, um, uh, at that time it was Fort Lewis, uh, doing kind of like your final officer training and then you finish out and you get your commission and then you go on active duty. Hmm. Um, so kind of like, you know, there are different pathways to becoming an officer. Some people go to OCS, some people do ROTC. Um, but either way, I mean, I, I ended up as a, a second lieutenant in the infantry. Um, the good thing with that is, you know, I, uh, I got the opportunity to go to ranger school. So, you know, Camp Merrill, you know, yeah. right on in there. Um, and so did that. And then I, I took an infantry platoon overseas as my first assignment, um, in Iraq. So I was a infantry platoon leader, a combat arms platoon leader. Mm. Um, what and was, then like, I'm sorry, I was just going to ask, what no, was that ahead. like, you know, I'm going to come back to that. I want to ask you what that experience was like here in a little bit. So, so go ahead, go okay. ahead, keep going. Yeah, no, I, um, so I did that, uh, got, got the deployment initial itch scratched. And, um, I mean, like once you, once you went over there, I guess the biggest thing was you just like, you knew there was more to the story, right? So it's like, you know, there's the story that everyone kind of gets fed via the news or media or whatever outlet, you know, you get your information from. And, but then there was like the real story. Then there was like a couple layers deep and that's what initially kind of drew me into the special operations community. 
um, because they were on the other side of that fence, right? They were like, there was the half of the story that, you know, you only get, you got to witness when you were over there because there were these random people dressed like civilians. They didn't wear uniforms. Sweet beards. Sweet beards, man. All the tattoos. Yeah. And you're just like, man, everyone and stuff. Yeah, right. All their, all their Velcro and, and bullshit. And they're like, (laughs) this is, (laughs) (laughs) that's what I mean. Let's be honest. Like everyone wants to look cool at the end of the day, you know? And they're like, hold on. Let me, uh, let me, yeah, right. Good. (laughs) (laughs) My high speed bootlicker wannabe. No, no. It's just like, there was, there was a mission that was going on that like, we were all like on the, on the periphery of, and you just got that sense. And so I was like, that I wanted, I want to do that. I want to do what they're doing. So as soon as I got back, um, as soon as I met the minimum requirements, I put in a packet, um, to go to special forces assessment selection. Um, and I did, and, you know, I was, God, if I think back, that was, I think there was like 50 of of like our selection class. There was like 53 officers out of like a 200 some odd person selection class. And then by the end of it, I think 30 of us actually finished selection and then 19 oh of us were selected when 19 were selected. To, oh and that gosh. was just, that was to get into the pipeline. So that's like, that's not, you have to try out to go to the two year tryouts to then make it to your operational unit. So, and that was, that was a total long shot. I was like, I just kind of just took that like one day at a time. Like, this is just, it's just cool to be here and we'll just run this out as far as we possibly can. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I really don't want to skim over that because for the, you know, I know that there are listeners out there who know what special forces are to an extent, or at least they know what they've been told or what they've seen in movies. You know, they, they probably heard of Delta. Um, I don't want to skim over the selection process. That's remarkable. Okay. I mean, dude, that's like I said, you're, you're one of the only it's... people I've ever met who have been through it. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience. So it's like everyone, I think the, the thing that people have to realize is that, you know, while it is a special thing, it's a unique experience. I mean, it, it, it totally kind of lays you bare as an individual, like everything gets put out on the table. It's not mm. just, you know, the, the fastest, the strongest, you know, and at, by the end of it, you kind of get an interesting perspective on, you know, just where you're at as an individual, because I mean, they take everything into account. So, you know, and, and every, and everything is different, right? So it's like, you know, people look at special operations as like the tip of the spear, you know, but, but what they forget about at the end of the day is you, you need the whole spear in order to be effective, right? If, if, if all you had was just the tip of the spear, then you just, you pinprick people, right? Like you need the full, length of the spear in order to be an effective weapon system. So like you need the rest of the United States military. So people would always ask me like, well, what's better like Ranger or green mm. beret or Delta. And I'm like, everyone it's, it's not a hierarchical structure. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, horizontal spectrum, not a vertical spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was kind of something that they looked for specifically. I mean, cause when you, you know, every special operations unit has kind of a different, capability, you know, like Navy SEALs are more of your direct action, you know, Green Berets specifically in their kind of charter mission are more special activities, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we do the direct action stuff. We also do 
a lot of the unconventional warfare stuff, which is which was that long game that was getting played out that you knew was happening, but these were the people who were actually doing it. Um, and we probably had no idea as civilians. No, yeah, no, and 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 that's the thing is that like you know, and that's where you know once you kind of got onto the other side of the fence, you started to realize that you know there's a much greater narrative that was being played out. You know, and and the selection experience was very much tailored around that. So, you know, if all you were trying to do is get the best door kickers in to, you know, just, you know, kick down doors and smash heads, like you would want your, your biggest, strongest individuals, you know, but I mean, a lot of selection was like, you know, we, we weren't allowed to wear watches. The, the cadre never actually spoke to you as an individual. They, they referred to you by a roster number. They never gave you any instructions. They wrote all their instructions on a whiteboard. And that one person had to watch the whiteboard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> right. And, and it would be like, you're going to start here. You're going to just run. And then at some point in time, it's going to end. And we, we don't know how long we ran and we would get pulled in, you know, off a, a road march and we get put into a classroom and you get a 500 question personality test at yeah. three o'clock in the morning, you know? And it was, and it was just, it was like, it was just a really unique experience. And it's cause it's like, cause they're not, they're not trying to evaluate for just one particular aspect. You know, it's, it's yeah. a whole person concept. So that's what I'm saying. So when you leave selection, like you're, you're leaving with a, a really unique perspective on, you know, what you're capable of as an individual. Um, and then, and then, like I said, that was just the gateway into the rest of the, the rest of the two year training pipeline in order to become an actual green beret. So, um, they, they usually say like the real selection takes place after selection and that's, mm. you still have to make it through the end of the two because people will drop, they'll get cut. There's gates you have to meet for the next two years before you actually go to an operational unit. Yeah. Can you, can you break that process down specifically for us? I mean, like I said, the seals, they got lit up in the media and there's so many movies uh -huh. about their process. So everybody's familiar sure. with the terms of buds and hell week and things right. like that. So if you don't mind, like explain the, the benchmarks and the timeframes of, of the entire selection process. That way I think it'll bring a, a greater appreciation to the listener. Yeah. So, you know, you, you start with kind of your phase one, um, which is almost kind of a repeat of selection, essentially same kind of experience, a lot of unknown gates, land navigation, you know, just a bunch of random tasks. And then they start honing in more of your specific skills. So for me as an officer, um, the only job that I could have on a detachment is a detachment commander. So I had to, I got to lead the team. Um, so I didn't have a specific job that I was trained like a, like a no pressure. Or, right. No. And, and uh, oh man, that's, that's a whole other, because I, it's, oh man. Yeah. Once I get to the end, once we start talking about EMS stuff, I'll, I'll share with you a very funny story Awesome. Um, <laughs> of what it was like going from a detachment commander of a special forces team to putting on a cadet t-shirt as a paramedic trainee. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, oh, wow. Yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a pretty humbling experience. Um, anyways, so, so once you kind of get through your, your first part, then you start your job training. Um, so everyone kind of breaks off and they do the medical stuff, the weapons stuff, communication stuff. Um, and then everyone kind of comes back for a final, you know, month long exercise where you kind of put everything to use in a, big giant training scenario. 
Um, and then we all go off to language school um, and everyone learns, everyone gets assigned a uh, foreign language. So I got to learn how to speak Russian. Um, nice. Of which I, of which I did use. I, in all fairness, um, I did get, a, I did test it. Everyone had to test out uh, a, a fluent speaker level. Um, wow. And so I left speaking Russian, went to an operational unit. And then immediately was back overseas again. Yeah. Uh, this time. The, the only Russian I can speak is uh, Habib uh, Nurmagomedov saying smish. <laughs> <laughs> smish. That's the, only, that's the only Russian I can speak. So, I mean, and, and by no means, like, I, this, this wasn't designed for you to like blend in into Russia. I mean, I, I obviously cannot. Um, in fact, it's sad because I haven't been able to use it much since banging out, but. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, and that's, and then at the end of that, the culmination, you know, after your language training, um, you get your green beret and you go to any other specialized training, whether it's free fall dive, um, that you'd need for your unit. And then you're off to the races and, um, you are doing all the stuff and things. And for me, that looked like going to, you know, taking over, a special forces detachment in third special forces group and took them over to Afghanistan and started doing Afghanistan rotations. Um, and, and then after that kind of like, I found another little niche capability and went to another selection and then, uh, took a, a three man team, uh, to North Africa. Um, and that was kind of like the culmination then, but by that time I had, I was fortunate enough to only have leadership positions. I never, I never made it to staff, which I was always trying to avoid like being the, the staff officer, you know, your operations guy. So does that um, mean you're not actually executing the missions? You're just planning them and right, right. You're in a headquarter building somewhere. <laughs> so like, you're not, you're not on the ground. Like I, I had the privilege of leading troops my entire, you know, decade long military career. So it was, huge honor that way. And, and I mean, the caliber of individual was just, I mean, that, that was really kind of like the best part of all my special force experience with being around people who, you know, unlike, like when you think about, you know, people who join the military for whatever reason they join the military for, I mean, usually it's, it's, it's not always their first choice, you know, like they kind of get forced into that line of work. Mm. I mean, everyone obviously volunteers for it, but like, when you're only volunteering for a limited amount of menu options, you know, like you don't always get the highest caliber individual to just enter into the military. Um, but at that level, I mean, everyone who was at that level in special forces, like they absolutely wanted to be there and they like, they fought to stay there, whether they lost arms or legs, mm. like they would, they would do everything they could to just stay um, instead of getting booted out or moved or anything like that. So, I mean, it was really, really inspiring to see. And that's, I don't know, that's kind of what I take with me, um, moving forward is just, it was, it was a huge honor, you know, it was really, really unique. And I don't know. Yeah. I was, I was a captain, captain promotable. I'd, I'd made all the, the requirements for major, um, to become a field grade officer and, but then I was like, and then, at that point in time, I would have had to move on. I couldn't, I couldn't be on a team anymore. I had to, Oh, bummer. I had to play the big army, the the big army rules and go off to, uh, do other things. So, so that's when I got out, um, kind of right, right at the halfway point, which was hard, man. Cause guy could have been retired at 
authority. <laughs> so, Chris, Chris, let me let me ask you um, to to go back to the training part. How long how long did that whole selection and training process take? So the selection, like the special force assignment selection, took about twenty one days. The actual training process, like the back to back schooling from phase one all the way to graduation, takes about two years. Okay, so, so certain certainly it's not all. Uh, you know, as we, as is dramatized in, uh, movies and, um, as fun as it may look, um, <laughs> how many, how many times during that, uh, during that training were you, uh, or was there, or was there ever a time you were ready to just drop out? Like, this is ridiculous. This is so difficult. Um, uh, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I told myself I'd quit tomorrow. And I just ran. Out, I just ran out of tomorrow's. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that was my next question. Like, if then what? How did you overcome that? Yeah. So, I mean, they're like, I got all right. So, so for me, like my my Achilles heel and all of my army schools was always land navigation. I hated like it. Like the way it 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 wasn't until much later in my career did I realize kind of why land navigation is such a test because they're not really teaching you how to navigate. I mean, yes, you are, you are navigating cross country with a map and a compass, like very rudimentary navigation, which in all reality, if we were overseas, we'd use GPSs. But, but what they're really testing you is your ability to work through frustration, your ability to like, not, you know, to get lost and, and find your way, you know, to kind of develop a, a gut instinct that, you know, a lot of people I think lose, along the way in their life. Um, and then, you know, just test your ability to be by yourself. You know, a lot of people, and that was kind of the way special forces training initially worked was that everyone had to be selected and assessed as an individual before they could join a team. Um, so there was a, there was an individual level of proficiency that was required. And for me, like, God, I mean, there are so many times where I was just so frustrated. Like I would get lost. I'd get I'd fall down this little like mini hillside, get caught in bushes. <laughs> I just like, I mean, just you name it, you know, my, my flashlights would burn out, like just all the, all the things. And I just be like, I'm done. I don't need to do this. I'm, I'm volunteering to be here. Like no one's keeping me here, but myself. Um, so yeah, like there, there are a lot of times where I was just like, I'm done. So now I just have to find my way out of here so I can go quit. Cause obviously I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm lost in the woods, you know, like I can, I can quit in my mind, right? Like I can, I can be done in my mind, but at the end of the day, I still got to find my way to a road or to a cadre member to quit. And then by that time I was like, Oh shit, I'm actually not lost anymore. Okay. Now maybe I can keep going. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, I, I had like every time I had the opportunity to quit, it was after a small victory. And I was like, all right, well, let's just get one more small victory. Let's just go to the next thing. And eventually like, you know, I mean, again, it's, it's not all physical, you know, I know, I know a lot of the the hype that you see around like buds and Navy seals and stuff like that is a lot of like a bunch of people rolling on the sand and ocean and just like all the physicality of it, which, you know, is what a lot of people I think spend the most amount of time preparing for, which at least in my experience, that actually wasn't the limiting factor for people. Like a lot of people were physically strong enough you know, and totally capable in that regard. I mean, they're, they're back squatting hundreds of pounds, 
but they get so frustrated. Mm. They, they, they make the mistake of always trying to be first, which that was actually probably the best advice I got in selection was like, don't try to be first every time. Just try to be in the top third throughout the entire experience. Right. Did you get that advice from like a cadre member or was it a, a pre? I, so a pre, so guys, uh, I actually got the, from, from the recycles, like, cause if you didn't pass, you would have the opportunity to come back and try again. Um, or some people were given the opportunity to come back and try again. That's and that's what they would always say. Yeah. They're like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, cause, because, again. well, cause people were invested. Like once, mm. like once they got a little bit of feedback they're like, Hey, look, you know, this is what you need to work on. They would go out, they'd work on it and then they'd come back. And that's what everyone would always say. Everyone would always come back and they would be like, <laughs> like, don't try to be first, like try to be sixth or seventh. Right. Cause like the, the type A mentality is to always try to be first, but in the end of the day, like you're not going to be first at everything. Mm. And, you know, part of being, you know, especially as a attachment commander, you know, th- I, I was not the best shot on the team. I was not the best, you know, medic on the team. Like every individual member of the team had their own specialty. Like it was my job to leverage their specialty. So, you know, being able to look at a team and assess their capability without feeling the need to be out in front all the time, mm. like, and be able to kind of like exert influence and maneuver, uh, but still allow them to kind of do their thing. Like that was what they looked for in detachment commanders. Um, so yeah. As, as you were going through all of that, were, were you able to kind of see the end goal through the entire process or were there times where you just couldn't see w- <laughs> that what you were doing really made sense? And did that change the way that you led in the future? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I, there are a lot of times where I was like, I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like to me, like in the moment, it doesn't make sense in my own rationale, but I'm doing it anyways. And I think a lot of that came down to just me trusting the process. Like I know there's a process here. I mean, I'm not the first person to go through this experience. Um, and, and they kind of break down the method to the madness at the very end. Like it's not, it's not something you're kind of privileged to because I don't think they, they don't want you to kind of game the system. They just want you to, exert effort like they don't tell you when things start or finish they don't they like they don't count repetitions for your push-ups out loud you know and it, <laughs> and it frustrates you because like you want that you you're you're conditioned throughout your entire whether, whether it's your educational experience or life experience is to always look for feedback as if it's something that you need to like continuously drive you forward um and they deliberately robbed you of that yeah i, I <laughs> guess it's like human instinct you know like if you're living right. out in the wild you're not, you're not going to count. <laughs> right. Gonna, no, exactly. You're yeah. just going to do right. And they like, they just, they just want you to do. So it was like, mm. eventually at some point in time, you know, just stop asking and just put your head down and just execute whatever task to the best of your ability. And and you found like, once you started to let go of expectation, your performance actually increased right? Like the less, the less you were thinking about of like, how well am I doing compared to everyone else in the class? And the more you thought about just like, I'm just going to hold on to this ammo can for as absolutely as long as I can until my grip hold like gives out your, your performance increased, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think that at least in the way I kind of rationalized it in my head, I was like, that's kind of what they're getting for. Like if they want to see 
what you're capable of as an individual with your own drive, your own, you know, getting out of your own head and just focusing on action. Um, and yeah, some of it made sense in the moment, some of it didn't, but eventually I was just like, I mean, if I'm going to get the truest experience, like if I'm really going to know at the end of the day, I don't want it to be like me trying to game the system. I don't like, it's going to be me and it's going to be my full effort and that's how it's going to land. And then I eventually just, I stopped trying to make sense of it all and was just like, just tell me which way you want me to go boss and I'll go that way. <laughs> so one, one last question on that, Chris, do you have any examples? can you share any experiences that you had either in, in battle or in operations where that kind of preparation, um, really became important? Um, yeah. So, I mean, really, really in all battles, right. Cause it's like, you know, you can, you can plan and prepare to a point, right. I mean, every mission we went on in Afghanistan, there was a, a main plan. There was a contingency plan, you know, eventually you just had to react to what was going on around you. Um, and rather than try to kind of fight your plan, you just had to fight a developing situation. Um, you know, there was there one firefight in particular, just, you know, it, it drew on for about 18 hours, it much longer than what we had prepared for, Gosh. you know, like, and, but in the end of the day, like we got what we needed to get. You know, we, 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 it just took us a lot longer than what we thought, you know, and, and, and so I, I think, you know, where, where that becomes important, especially, you know, as you kind of tailor that into your EMS experience, you know, you have a, you have a treatment plan, you have an algorithm that you think is going to work, you know, and then when it doesn't, some people just completely shut down. They're like, well, I gave up, like, that was it, <laughs> right? I tried this drug. I tried this intervention. Mm. Now what? Right. But, you know, part of, part of your whole selection and training process was to be able to kind of have a plan, but also be able to react to a developing situation. So, and to accomplish your goal. So I want to kind of, uh, backtrack a little bit. First off, before we do that, I want to review the numbers. You said over 250, very highly qualified people who had mm -hmm. already been through ranger school, probably jump school. They went airborne training. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking the cream of the crop. And yeah. nine, 19 were selected. Yeah. That so of my officer class, yeah so, yeah. so we had, um, you know, so, so off the bat, when you submit your packet, usually mm -hmm. they only take the top 50% of applicants packet wise. So your applicant, so the bottom 50, is that just a so, sheer volume thing? Like that's how much uh, they can handle or. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I know that was like the whole ranger school trick was the, like for your PT test for ranger school. Like they're like, don't go to the back of the line because they can only accept so many people into ranger school. So mm. you're going to be forever caught at that 51st push up or whatever it ends up being. Oh man. Yeah. And you just can't get low enough. Um, so for officers, you know, they, they take the fair, the top 50% of their packets. Um, for me, yeah, it was 50, 53 officers made it to go to selection 30 or so finished 19 were selected to go to the Q course. And then throughout that time, I, I mean, everyone, the people drop for a variety of reasons. I think of my original class and I, there were a couple people that recycled. I think there was eight of us that yeah. kind of made it all the way through and actually got our green berries at the end from like the group that I started with. And I, I bet your parents were like, okay, 
maybe he got it out of the system. <laughs> they're like, they're like, oh well, dang it. Like John <laughs> Wayne has made movies about me, bro. Yeah, like now we're <laughs> now we're committed. So um, yeah. So before that, whenever you talked about getting fresh out before Ranger School, before selection, whenever you got assigned to your first, uh, I think you said your first platoon, right? Your mm-hmm. infantry, um, in- infantry second lieutenant. There is something about the military that I wish that people could learn in EMS and e- fire, public safety in general. When you walk in there as a second lieutenant, and you're put in charge of people who have been in service for decades. Mm-hmm. Can you, do you mind going into that? I mean, what, how did that, yeah. was it terrifying? Was it like, all right, well, I know what to do. I've, been, I've had some good advice. Go into that a little bit. Sure. I, I think that, I mean, it's definitely intimidating. Um, but in the end of the day, like, I, I always kind of go back to the mantra, like leadership and management are two different terms, like not to be interchanged. Right. And, uh, you know, kind of going back to, you know, this idea of like leading from the front ish, it's like, it's like knowing where you can best command and control. And that, that, like, that was the mantra that was, you know, taught to every officer who went through every officer course in the military was you always put yourself in the position where you can best command and control your individual. So, you know, the goal was not to be number one in everything. Right. And I think that's kind of a very rudimentary style of leadership. And, and there were things to be an example of like, you know, anything, you know, physical fitness was one example that especially in, in the infantry officer realm that, you know, we kind of prided ourselves on was the officers were typically the most fit out of the platoon. Now it wasn't a matter of, we obviously knew everyone else had more experience than we did. So the good ones, I feel like knew how to leverage that experience, you know, and, and, you know, you're not trying to promote this my way or the highway type mentality of trying to be like in charge, you know, like Henry Ford didn't know how to make a car, but he knew how to put everyone in the right room who didn't know how to make a car Mm. in order to run a successful company. So it's kind of that same way is identifying, you know, looking at your team, looking at the strengths and weaknesses moving people around to support, you know, the best version of your team and, you know, identifying what the gaps were and then filling in those gaps by kind of being the up and out. Right. So that was kind of like the umbrella term for officers was, you know, be the up and out, be the person who gives the resources to people to be their best version of themselves. So whether that was requesting more, you know, I, for me, like I, you know, if you see pictures of me, like, especially in my Afghanistan days, I always had two radios. Like I had like a, I had a bunch of antennas, like always sticking out because everyone, like I was the guy talking to everyone above me, telling them what everyone below me needed. Like I was a, mm. I was a conduit of information and I was top cover. You know, I was, you kind of like that filter of, Hey, this is everything that's coming down. This is what my guys need to know. And we're going to do this, you know? So I, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah. And and I think it's a, it's an incredible parallel because that's kind of the point behind this whole HP thing is to find a super high performing person, tell their story of their adversity and see how it applies to EMS. So, you know, I have a friend who recently promoted, uh, she's a newer paramedic. She promoted to a captain's position at her department. 
and caught a ton of flack from it. You know, you haven't been in the field long enough, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have all this experience, but you know, I think she was wise enough to understand that. All right. Well, that's the person who I need to go to, who does have the experience, not necessarily say, Hey, tell me how to do Tell me how to run my shift, but help me learn you know, give me right. your advice. Is, is that kind of similar to what you did with NCOs yeah, or? Absolutely. Like, I mean, and you, you, you leverage the experience, of the people that you have, you know, I mean, now understand that everyone has their bias, right? So that's another thing that you kind of sift through as an officer. It's like, not only I'm not, I'm not only listening to what you're telling me, I'm also listening to why you're telling me what you're telling me. Right? Mm, Which, that's huge. Um, because again, like, you know, everyone's going to, they only, they can only experience what they experience. Right. And, you know, that might look a lot different than someone else's experience. So your, your job is to kind of like average the two of them because you're not, you're not trying to tailor to one individual, you know, you're trying to tailor to an organization, right? You have a, you have a mission that the group is supposed to accomplish and it's your job to see that that goal gets accomplished absent of any one individual, but inclusive of as many, if not all individuals mm. contributing towards that. So, so yes, it was a matter of seeking out and, and it's advice, right? You, you take everyone's advice with a grain of salt, you know, and, and like I said, cause a lot of people want to see things a certain way just because it'll benefit them more, not necessarily the organization more, but like, man, if this was only this way, then it would help me out. But you got four other guys who, if you did that one thing, then you're going to be missing or doing something bad for the rest of the group. So, yeah. So for, for me, it was like, it was a matter of one managing expectations uh, across the board and everyone has their own expectation and taking like the collective group average of experience and being like, okay, you know, what do people need? Why do they need these things? And seeing what was the most practical you know, thing you could possibly, you know, bring to the group. Cause I mean, again, you were, you were, for me, I was a conduit, you know, like I didn't, I didn't exist in any expert capacity. Um, but I had to be able to under, like, I think, and that was probably the biggest thing too, that I see, especially in EMS as it differs from where I came from in the military was that your job, if you did have one specific job that I think was kind of sacred to officers is that you had to make your guys understand Cause everyone kind of looks up and out at leadership or management and they're like, what are they thinking? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how do, how are they so dumb? How are they so detached? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like from, and, and it's, it's not that they're detached. It's that every layer of the hierarchical structure looks at a problem differently depending on where they sit. So every, as high, the higher up you go up the ladder, the more different problems look. So your job was to be able to understand how other people saw the problem and then relay that to your guys. So they had context for decisions that were being made because if they, if there's one way to lose a group of soldiers faster than anything else is, was when they didn't understand the big picture. And that was very, very common in the conventional army. It, it still happened in the special operations community, but not as much because it was a smaller organization and people were more personally plugged in. Um, because you had, I mean, you went from being what we call a tactical asset in the conventional army to a strategic asset in the special operations realm. So you were, your view, part of your training was to think globally, to think more, you know, 
don't just look at this conflict as the immediate transaction of bullets being fired at you, but think 5, 10, 15 years down the road of why Afghanistan matters. Why does, why does Iraq matter? You know, um, and then things start to make a little bit more sense. So your job as an officer was to make sure that your guys, to the extent possible, had some measure of strategic understanding to where they didn't just look at their leadership and be like, what the fuck are they doing? You know what I mean? Like, like that, this doesn't make any sense. So, um, so yeah. And that's, and that's something that I think, I don't know. I mean, I haven't obviously worked in every EMS organization, but I feel like, you know, lacking, lacking strategic vision at the ground level is something that's relatively common uh, in EMS. And that's, and that's the Absolutely. job. And that is, and that is the job of leaders is to, is to bring that level of understanding in a way that people can understand at the ground. You, you know, know that's, a, it, that's an interest, such an interesting way for you to put that. Um, have you seen uh, outside the military, especially as uh, people in fire departments or police departments or other things, other areas that are uh, use uh, the paramilitaristic mentality uh, where do you see or what what happens when we have leaders that kind of do the opposite of what you're saying? Their mentality is, no, you're going to do this because I have this rank and I'm telling you, you do not need to know why we are doing something. Right. Uh, you just do it because I say so. Where we, said what so. happens with that? Yeah. It, and that's it's definitely problematic. Right. And and I think a lot of it has to do pull well, part of it, at least what I've witnessed so far. A lot of it has to do with the promotional process, right? So, you know, are you selecting the right person for the job or are you just trying to fill a seat? Because mm -hmm. if I think the one, the one tendency that people have when they're promoted either a like too early is that they're trying to get everyone to like them. Like they're mm -hmm. trying to be everyone's friend, like, like being everyone's friend and being a leader, you know, like people will like you because you're a nice person but people will respect you if you, like you bring value to the table. I think one thing that I see, especially in EMS is that either a, like some of our, you know, some people just want to be like one of the guys and I'm like, don't get me wrong. Like you can be, but you have to know when to turn that off. Yeah. And, and, and it can't be that way all the time. Right. If, and if you like, you have to have a consistent narrative across the board, like it, you have to like, man, there's so much to say. Like, I, I don't want to, <laughs> if any of my bosses are listening, I don't want to call anybody out, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's like, examples that I sent you earlier. Right. No. Yes. Yeah. I got you. Absolutely. <laughs> it is that, you know, you, your rank is given to you, but you know, you use it right. And you have to use it consistently and, and you, and you have to respect your own rank if you want other people to respect your rank, like you can't, you have to act differently. You have to think differently. You have to conduct yourself differently. Um, and like, it was interesting, like, in like when I, when I got into special forces, one of the, when I, when I took over for the captain who I replaced on the team, a uh, very well-liked guy, wonderful guy, the team loved him. Um, and, you know, it was, it was hard to see him leave. Cause that's just, that's the nature of officers in the military is that we were only there for so much. And then we move on. And I was like, you know, I was like, do you have any, do you have any advice for, for an incoming detachment commander? He's like, you know, he's like being a captain 
in special forces is like being the captain of a pirate ship, right? He's like, it's your ship. You're in command. You know, the ship will go where you tell it to go, but you're a pirate, right? Like there are, there are no British officers on pirate ships. Right. So, and I, and I, and I'm like, and to me, like that was the best analogy for like, the ideal leadership quality, but, but it assumed a level of competency and respect and discipline from your guys. And if they lacked that, like the type of leadership that I used in special forces was not the type of leadership that would have flown in the conventional army, right? Like you had, you had to earn the first name basis. Like everyone, like, you know, when you looked at a special forces team, we all call each other by our first names, right? We all knew who was in charge, but we all referred to each other by our first names, but you earned the right to refer to each other by your first names because of what you went through to get there. If, if you started calling a bunch of 18 year old privates by their first name, right? Like they'd be like, Oh, he's just one of us. He's just one of the guys. And then you would do something that like contradicted that. And they'd be like, Oh man, he's, he's such a dick. I hate him. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And it become like this personality thing where we're like, we're all trying to be friends but not really. Hmm. So I think like, that's one thing that civilian leadership tends to get a little caught up in where it's like, you're wearing the rank of a military officer, but you're trying to be my friend, but I don't really know you, you know, I, so it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And I, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, some people, at least in where I've seen it go bad is that they wear rank that they don't fully understand like its own power, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a captain's rank, but you're not talking to me like a captain, but you're trying to like, yeah. you know, it, it, there's a level of trust that has to be built before you can kind of lead people a certain way. And I think when people either accelerate through ranks, get promoted early, or, you know, it's, you know, you start to get the vibe that someone is just trying to look out for their own career and they become a careerist, then people just lose respect very quickly for yeah. you. And they like your leadership style becomes ineffective. Um, so so I think uh, this is probably going to sound super random for the listeners, but I think they're going to get it here in a little bit. When did the yoga um, practice start in the military? Yeah. So listeners so are that, like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. So that's a, that's a big question. So that actually comes in like multiple parts. So I first started practicing yoga um really as a means of physical recovery. Like that's how it started. You know, we, I mean, obviously, you know, all the physical preparation, whether it was for ranger school selection, et cetera, um, all took a physical toll on the body. So yoga was initially my go-to for physical recovery. Um, and, and that, that was what introduced me to the practice. Uh, and then, but that was just that, I mean, that was just the physical practice of yoga. I didn't, I didn't take it anywhere beyond just the physical asana postures that you would get in a hot yoga class. And that was that. Did you um, learn it in the military or did you know it beforehand? How did, how did that? It was, it was, it was in the military. So I like, you know, when I started in the military, I mean, I'm working out and fitness has always been a part of my life. Um, for as long as I can remember, I've been a coach for about a decade I was just too cheap to pay for a gym membership. So I would just train <laughs> coaching for a gym space to train in. That's fair. Um, yeah. And then I, uh, um, I just kind of adopted yoga as my recovery, like my main avenue of physical recovery. Um, so after that, 
I, it wasn't until like I started to deploy a bunch, see stuff, had to like work through problems and issues to where I really started to lean heavy into the other aspects of yoga, the, the mindset, the meditation aspects, like, like what yoga actually was not, not what the West claimed that it was. So specifically, I mean, the actual moment that I attribute, like making that transition, um, if you're, I was talking about like that, that massive firefight, you know, earlier, uh, in the conversation. And so midway through that, um, after, you know, I had, I had passed my initials over radio that caused, you know, two jets to drop their, their payload, their 500 pound bombs on a mountaintop that I couldn't see. Um, everything kind of went quiet and there was a lull for about, ah, it was probably about 30 minutes or so. And my engineer sergeant looks at me and he's like, man, I'm starving. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like me too. He was like, he's like, did you bring your jet boil? And I was like, yeah, it's in my pack. He's like, good. I got cup noodles. You want to go make some cup noodles in the Humvee? And I was like, that sounds amazing. So, so like, so like the smoke's still like billowing on the mountaintop. Right. And we're sitting in a Humvee just eating cup noodles. Like, but it was, it was totally calm. And I was like, and that moment sticks out to me because, you know, here was this practice that's dedicated to present moment awareness that doesn't matter how chaotic the situation gets, right. It doesn't matter what's going on around you there, there is a peace to be found in everything. And from that moment forward, like that's when I started like physically, like, like dedicating time and energy to, um, mindfulness and meditation. And, and that's what kind of like completed the yoga practice. So it was like, now it was, now it was the physical postures and it was the, other like like the goal of yoga right and, and you know even when you go back to the like the yoga sutras where we get all of this from it, it had nothing to do with standing on your hands it had nothing to do with just like all the insane stuff that you see on instagram it had everything to do with being able to like sit with reality exactly as it was absent of the narrative that you tell yourself about it which causes you to suffer in the end of the day because you know when you when you're taking stuff home with you it's not the trauma that you experience. It's the story that you tell yourself about the trauma that you experienced, right? Like that's like, that's what you're holding on to. So here, here is a practice that, you know, that could separate you from that, you know? So, so when you started dealing in traumatic incidences, when people started dying, like that was what allowed me to leave stuff in the moment and not carry it back. Um, so that was, that was overseas time that that. did you, uh, did you have your soldiers and your, um, Delta team members do it as well? Um, they like, (laughs) not really. It was, it was, it was a person like everyone, everyone had their thing. You know, I think that was one thing where I, uh, I, I didn't mess with their own spirituality at all. I mean, people would ask me questions about it and I would answer them, Mm -hmm. but you know, for me, like I was, I was very much a learner in that phase. Like I wasn't 
I didn't like, I didn't go to yoga teacher training until I was after the military, like out mm -hmm. of the military. So that was like, that was my, one of my first experiences outside of the military was actually like formalizing this and like learning how to teach yoga. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is, uh, I'm telling you, I, my wife makes fun of me. We, uh, we took some yoga classes together. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I learned really quickly how short my arms really are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh i hated it it hurt so bad <laughs> it, uh, it it's, killed me well yeah it's i don't know it, and i get it man like i it was the same way for me too like when Force i started this was my favorite i was like yeah, right done <laughs> you know the funny the funny thing about corpse pose is that corpse pose was actually a meditation posture i believe it it's it wasn't it wasn't like the the nap with like the cold towel that everyone gets at the end of a hot class <laughs> Like originally, like that was designed as a meditation posture as like a total physical release as if you yeah. were quote unquote dead. Yeah. Well, and she warned me, she was just like, you know, you say jujitsu is hard on your body. You say that Muay Thai, <laughs> this is going to hurt. And I was like, oh, it's not, it's not going to be that bad. I couldn't even, yeah. I couldn't even finish. So, so yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um, so for, for the listeners, we're, we're going to come back to that later on we're going to yoga does play a part into this i promise yes um so in your military training you talked about this guy was a good medic this guy may have been a better medic did you were you required to get your emt while going through um special forces training or how did that work so we um yes and no uh we we so we all cross trained um because i mean there was only we were supposed to have two medics on a team uh, if we got all our people. Sometimes we only had one, um, but everyone was cross-trained to what they told us was an EMT level. Um, so, but they just did, they didn't, we didn't get an EMT designation or certificate for it. Um, but everyone knew basic airway maneuvers. You know, it was, it was all mostly, I mean, it was all trauma stuff. So we, mm -hmm. I think what civilians called TECC, the, tactical yeah. emergency casualty care. Like we did T triple C. So tactical right. combat casualty care. Um, yeah. but everyone on the team was all certified in T triple C. Cool. Um, so you can yeah. do chest decompressions, all that good stuff. Yep. Nice. So it was like, it was like, it was like ENT plus, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we weren't, we weren't designated as medics. Gotcha. So, so at, at what point did you, uh, did you say, all right, well, I'm, I'm out of the middle. Actually, no, I don't want to skip GORUCK because oh, GORUCK okay. was between special forces and EMT, right? Yeah. So GORUCK, yeah, GORUCK started. Um, so when I got out of the military, initially I kind of like, I don't know, I screwed around for about a year or so, like just a bunch of random odd jobs where I worked for Softlead, worked for GORUCK because I mean, they were all special operations community people. So yeah, I was about to say know. like, what better transition than GORUCK? Right. No, yeah. You get to put great, civilians but... through selection, like explain right. to everybody what GORUCK is if they don't know. Yeah. So, so GORUCK was a company that was started by, I think it was fifth special horses group veteran, uh, Jason McCarthy. And, you know, so it started, I mean, he started making backpacks, but then, you know, that slowly transitioned into creating these, like special forces esque type events that people would sign up for. I mean, granted they weren't, they were only a day or depending on the duration of the event, we had 
like short, medium, longs. Um, Wasn't there like and, a forty-eight hour one or something like that? Yeah, they they had specialty events. Like you know, I did kind of like the lights and the heavies on occasion because I mean we would go up for a weekend and do the things and it was i mean it was exhausting i was like i i kind of felt like what my cadre were going through i'm like jesus i'm like we think it's hard going through like as a as a trainee but i'm like if you're a cadre who's responsible for like a bunch of people who are like zombied out because they're so exhausted and they're just like Mm -hmm. trailing off into the woods and like you don't (laughs) want them to like die or something like you got to keep track of everybody yeah because these are just civilians that signed up and paid for it right oh yeah no and they're just (laughs) i mean they're like you know they they watch a couple of youtube videos and they're like oh that sounds cool (laughs) and but it was like what what it did force me to do like being a cadre for go ring events was it forced me to kind of like distill my special forces experience down into like principles Mm. that would be palatable for civilians right so like we're not i'm not trying to like turn these people into green berets in a weekend But what I am trying to do is I am trying to like take some of the most valuable lessons that I did learn and, you know, relay them to a group of people who hopefully can use them in their office jobs, Yeah, man. whatever, whatever life. Um, Very cool. So, so yeah, I mean, getting people to like navigate unknown and unknowable situations, like work with people that they've never met before, you know, just make them awkward and uncomfortable (laughs) because Well, I mean, cause that was the whole thing, right? Like it was, you know, when, when we're used to our physical testing, a lot of times, you know, we test ourselves in a gym, which is a very controlled environment. The bars are evenly weighted. I'm supposed Air- to be tested here. Like, right. Like, yeah. like you, you think about like all the other times you decided to go for like a max effort, anything. It was like on your best day after you were well hydrated, after you were, you slept perfectly and then you go out and you test yourself. Well, this was, this was the exact opposite of that. Like this was, I want to see what you can do with no sleep, not a lot of food. You got sand everywhere. People you don't know. People you don't know, you you know, and, and, and then you're being forced to like lead them. Like you're the one, like like you're the one in charge, bro. Like figure (laughs) and just, but like watching people like solve those problems in real time was, was fascinating because like they, some people really rose the challenge. Some people like got a real look at themselves and were like, Oh man, like maybe this is not for me, or maybe this is like a quality that I just don't possess. Maybe I thought I did, you know, but like when you, when you really want to know if you know something, it's, it's not what you can do at your best moment where you feel the most prepared. It's when you feel the least prepared, can you still execute? You know? Mm. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was a blast. I mean, I mean, everyone, I mean, by and large, like, I mean, my goal is not to, I mean, people are obviously signing up for these and we want them to continue to sign up for them because that's how we make money. And, you know, so our goal is not to like, get you to quit, you know? And, and right. I always tell people like, I, like my, and every cadre had their own like little spin on everything. Cause everyone kind of came from a different area of the special operations community. Some were green berets, some were air force special operations, some were Navy seals. Um, but for me, like, like, and I, I, I would conclude my events. Um, and it was actually, I don't remember the story about the guy who I shared the cup noodles with. Um, he's dead. Uh, mm. and, and at his, and at his funeral, um, our, um, my, the warrant officer in charge of our team. So there's an officer and a warrant officer, the warrant officer gave a speech where, you know, he said that, you know, the, here was a guy 
who did not need a patch or a tab to make him special. He made the tab and the patch special for everyone else, right? So the tab says special forces on it. You know, he didn't need that, but he made it meaningful for everyone else. So at the end of the go ruck events that I did, like, like this is not a workout patch for doing something really hard. Like this is like, this is a commitment that you are going to be this best version that you're going to work towards this best version of yourself every single day. Cause I mean, anyone can like go out and suck. Like we do CrossFit, we suck for an hour and we're done. Um, but this represents like, like make this patch meaningful by continuing to work on these tenets and principles that we learn throughout the weekend, you know, and, and people, and people really embrace that. Like it was, a, it was a really fascinating community of people to be involved in. Um, and it's like, just like, like guys who just, I would never think would like come out and do this stuff. And they would just be so, they'd be so motivated. And I was like, man, I'm like, you, <laughs> I'm like, you are motivated. Like, like you motivate me. And I was like, that's, I like you, you know, and you're going to hate me, but I like you. <laughs> so, so at what point did you decide EMS? And why, Um, why in the um, world, (laughs) why in the world EMS? So I, this is going to sound kind of bad. So I, when I left the military as an officer, I took honest stock and inventory of like, what, like what skills do I have? Right. Like, and what, and what is a reasonable expectation of a life that I can create with those skills? Now I, all my skills were in leadership and management, I guess. And I, I mean, I'm not just going to walk in to a leadership position at that level right off the street. Like no one kind of walks into like that mid to upper level cream of the crop management, you know, just coming out. And I admittedly at the time, like, you know, I was going through a divorce and a bunch of other life stuff. So I just, I just wanted out. So I didn't really give myself enough time to kind of like line myself up career wise. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the one thing that drove me towards EMS was I, I remember, I remember like watching my medics on my team and I was like, man, I'm like, you guys are solving like real problems that you're actually seeing all the way through to completion, right? Like, like going overseas, like no one's going to win the war on terror, Right. I get the terror. It's going to be continued by the team behind me and the team behind them and the team behind them. And we're just going to keep doing this thing. But like you guys, like someone's bleeding and you can stop that bleeding immediately. Right. Someone doesn't have an airway and you can give them an airway, right. You can solve these real tangible problems for people. And I was like, but then I was like, then I realized I was like, shoot, I was like, as an officer, like I have no hard skills. Like, 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 what do I do with my hands? Right. Like, I don't really, I don't really lead with my hands, but I was like, I wanted to do something that had kind of an immediate benefit to the community that I found myself in, you know? And, and while I wasn't like it, special forces, one of those things where it's such an evolving game where once you're out, you're already behind. Right. So like, once you're out, you're out, you know, and, the team will pick up the fight and they'll continue it to whenever. But now it's like, I had to find something that I could throw myself into that was real, that was relevant, that, you know, was, was in some way like dedicated to improving, you know, improving the lives of people around me. And that's, 
I picked EMS and I didn't really know a whole lot about it. Um, I, again, like I knew what I experienced overseas, like seeing the stuff that people could do. I mean, they were, they were lifesavers, man. Like they, medics were absolutely saving lives every single day. And it was really inspiring to see that. And I was like, maybe I could do that. And so got my EMT, went to medic school, like that whole zero to hero medic experience. Um, and then I was like, wow, this is EMS. Like, okay. (laughs) I mean, a lot, a lot of what I expected, um, some of what I did not expect, you know, the, the institution in and of itself was something to kind of like, you know, get used to. What, what was Uh, that? What kind of program did you go through? So I went through, uh, Durham tech community college. So I went through an accelerated paramedic program. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a full-time program and we were like Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, eight to five clinicals, either on like Tuesday or Thursday in between that, maybe some on Saturdays. Um, yeah. Drinking, it was a drinking from a fire hydrant, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, it was, it was incredible. Like going from like EMT to medic and like the gap. And, but then like, but then like you go, like you go on your first call and they're like, Oh, look, the rescue squad's here. And I'm like, one, they don't know the difference between EMT and a paramedic. Like everyone, they call everyone EMTs, which I, nothing against EMT. Like we're like BLS before ALS hundred percent. But like, like it was, it was fascinating to see like the public that you served had such a little understanding of what you did. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and that was a huge difference between being in special forces where like you would go overseas and, and a lot of people knew what you were capable of doing. Like, but, but here, like no, even now, like mm-hmm. no one really knows what medics do and, or what we can do. And I think it always shocks people sometimes when, when they realize just like how great a scope of practice we actually have. Right. And, um, yeah. So I, yeah. So I just, I drunk from that fire hose for 18 months. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and then, and then, yeah, like, like I was saying, I, uh, I donned that cadet shirt. Just yeah. Take us, take giggle. us through that. I, I think now that oh, we have God. an understanding of your background, cause yeah, you know, I think that's another part of leadership is humility, but, uh, <laughs> tell us, uh, what that was like. No, it was, oh man, it was a valuable, it was a valuable lesson and I'm, I'm glad. And I actually, and you know what, as much as I wanted to get rid of that shirt, I saved it because it was such a valuable lesson. Um, and I also, I also, you know, have yoga to thank for helping me through that period, because if yoga reinforces anything, it's that you're constantly a beginner, like, or you should be, mm. or try to at least maintain that outlook. Um, because that's, that's where the real growth happens. So, you know, I, I recognize that I am, I'm not in charge, you know, like I, I have someone else who wears a captain's rank, which is interesting because I looked at people differently when they like, they wore the rank that I had, right? Like I, I I looked at my supervisor who has, who has the identical rank that I had on my beret and my uniform. And part of me was like, I wanted to expect the same, but at the same time, I'm like, wait a minute, Chris, like you're not, you're not in the military anymore. Like you're, you're in a different organization. You're in a different structure. 
you know, this is a different ball game. So just take it one, like do what you did in selection, take it one day at a time, absorb and just put like, put your head down and focus on effort. And, and I did. So I, but it was, man, it was because like EMS is weird because it's like, there's, it's a young profession. Like people Mm -hmm. coming into EMS are like in their twenties and then like, you know, I remember like going into like the hiring, like when we did our, our group hires for paramedics for our EMS agency and talking to some of our, you know, our fellow applicants and, you know, they'd all put us in a room and they would pull us in kind of one at a time and do the whole questioning thing. And, you know, we'd add, you know, we'd come back and talk about maybe some of our responses to questions. And it was just really interesting hearing like where people were coming from life-wise, like getting into EMS, like, uh, I mean, for a lot of people treated it like, I mean, they're, you know, they're there for two years because they need their patient contact hours to go to med school. You know, the people talk about their most stressful life experience is like getting lost in Europe and their cell phone died. And it was like, (laughs) it it was terrible. And they're like, I don't know what to do. You know, I had to sleep in a hostel. (laughs) <laughs> right. I had, to, I had to ask a stranger to borrow their charger so I could charge my cell phone. So, and, and you're like, what? And, and so they knew like, exactly like, okay. what it was like in Afghanistan. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, like, I'm not like, again, like to each their own, like everyone had their own life path, like getting to that point. But yeah, it was just really interesting to see like where everyone was coming from. Well, and two, I can't imagine what it's like coming from, a, from the military to where it doesn't matter what unit you were in. There's the same rank and structure, you know, Mm -hmm. but when you go from this department or service, and then you go across the city or County to a different department or service, they may not have captains. They may have lieutenants and then battalion chiefs. And the roles and responsibilities may be completely different for everybody. Yep. Absolutely. And, And I only, and I only have like, I, I only know what I know and just what I, you know, and talking to people because they are paramedic. Um, like we, our community college location kind of primarily fed into the organization that we all ended up working for. So we kind of only got indoctrinated really into one system. Gotcha. And, you know, you would talk to people who would work in different systems and there's pluses and minuses. Like people would more chase the system for demographic, like at least where I'm at in North Carolina, you know, we've got some more, you know, metropolitan built up areas that see a lot more traumas, a lot higher call volume. Um, I mean, we're kind of interesting and nice in the fact that like ours is split between urban and rural. So we have like a lot of elderly sick people that are farther away from the hospital. But then we also have some like condensed cities of, you know, parts of Durham and Chapel Hill um, that you do see a little more of an uptick of, you know, big city trauma type stuff. So you get a little bit of both. Um but yeah, as far as the institution goes, I mean, I don't know. I hear what people complain about and talk about, and sometimes I assume it's the same everywhere, but I guess not. Then what is it um, about EMS or about um, being a paramedic that kind of uh, has filled that um, area of your life? That I mean, obviously your person needs to be challenged. Um, you kind of sure. need to be kind of thinking on a, on a higher, fast-paced level. What has it been um, that transition from the military to EMS that has kind of filled that void or that area? Yeah, I, I mean, the sense that like I, I can see the immediate value of my work. 
Um, so that was that was part of the like coming out of the military where, you know, you like like when we when you play that long game, right? The stuff that we did in Iraq, Afghanistan, like we're we're not going to see the effects of that from another five, ten, fifteen years down the road. But in EMS, when I go to work every day. I can see the immediate impact of my treatments and interventions, right? I can, mm. I can intervene at a critical moment and solve a problem, which I mean, for me is very fulfilling. Um, I, for me, like, I, I kind of told myself when I left the military that like, I think I spent all the time that I needed to like being in charge of other people. And I just wanted to be in charge of myself mm. Yeah, uh, moving forward, you know? So I was like, I, I want to be responsible for what, I can do like, this is here are my skills. This is my scope. Like I'm going to go out and I'm going to just do what I can do every day. And I, uh, yeah. And that's, and that's been very rewarding. And for me, it's, I don't know, it's, it's feeling like what I'm doing matters. Like, cause that was in the end of the day, like that was, that was the one thing that pushed me from being in the conventional army to special forces and then from special forces into EMS was trying to find an outlet for effort and like contributing towards a real problem set with real consequences. And yeah. And then and, and to that end, EMS has been fantastic. I mean, I couldn't have asked for anything more. And as someone that is a, a, I mean, let's, let's be honest, you are a high performer um, just in your, in your thinking and your goals, have you found that, um, that end or at EMS as the fulfillment of that, or is this a stepping stone for you? Um, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm continuously learning about different outlets. I mean, cause like I said, being the more I learn about being a paramedic, I mean, you're like this Swiss army knife of medicine, um, hmm. that has, that has a lot of outlets. I mean, so as an example, most recently I, um, I picked up a side job uh, working at Duke Regional Hospital as a paramedic in the emergency room. So kind of not in the not in the pre-hospital sense, but now in the hospital sense where, you know, I might, I mean, I guess unless the residents and attending physicians and all, you know, they're all trapped in an elevator that was on fire, then I might be able to intimate. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right? Like, There's people um, driving all around going, yes, right. Oh my gosh. I mean, like, I'm like, we're itching for that one opportunity, which is never going to come. But on the flip side of that, like I have like the entire pharmacology, like open to me and my scope of practice, you know, which is, which is cool. Cause I've, you know, so, so that's been an interesting experience. I, and I'm sure you are actually guaranteed patient contact. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, well, that's the thing, like in, and that whole evolution, cause like I'm, I'm paramedic number eight at Duke regional. So like we're writing this, uh, like scope of practice, like as we speak, you know, cause again, like, so no you're saying knows. like recent, this is a recent oh, yeah. thing. Oh, this is, wow. yeah. So, so within like, I'd say within the last six to eight months, both of our like major level one trauma hospitals have started hiring paramedics to work in the emergency room mostly because i mean being practically speaking you know we come at like ten dollars an hour less than nurses and we have oh or more i mean i mean like, like, <laughs> yeah, or more, i know right? i know you know it's fine it's and, getting and, better it, it is no and and so i get that right but what it does do is i think it does like when we look at an organization that needs to kind of get forwarded and promoted like the hospital backing you as far as like no this is what paramedics can really do guys like 
Now we get to interact with patients on a whole other level. And yeah, they started hiring medics to work in the emergency room. And for me, like I, I do maintain a goal that I, this next year, starting in January, actually, I start um, a critical care program to of course, take my critical care, to my critical care exam. Um, I did my tactical paramedic board exam. I just, I took the test just to see what would happen and worked out well. <laughs> I'm sure it worked out just fine. <laughs> I, I, mean, I was like, all right, this is interesting. Um, but and yeah, now you help like, teach paramedic as well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, so I'm an adjunct paramedic instructor, um, over at Durham tech in the same program. So yeah, shout out to all my students out there. That's Y'all awesome. are doing great suffering through cardiology right now. Nice. Uh, <laughs> nice. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, and, and actually like I picked up that job more for myself than me actually liking teaching. I, mean, I do enjoy teaching, my, both my parents are teachers, um, which is funny because I swear I would, I swear I would never become like them, but here I am. Right. Um, but I was like, when I was a paramedic student, I was like, man, like there's so much material here to interact with. I'm like, I know I'm going to need more time with it. I mean, I, I have the time that I have, but at the same time, like you interact with material differently when you're required to teach it. Right. So oh, like, yeah. here's a, here's a way I can take all of this material that I had when I was a student as I'm practicing, turn it around and now trying to teach it. Now I can interact with it in a different manner, manipulate it. And like to try to kind of test my understanding of it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so my, like my end end goal, uh, to answer your question to, I think be a critical care flight medic. Um, and then I don't know, whatever else. If, yeah. Excellent. Well, in, in respect of your time, Chris, let me ask you about, um, first off, do you need to go like right now? No, not at all. Okay, good. It's, that was a very fast hour and 18 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, sure. Um, um, tell us about morphine and mindfulness and when, you know, tell us about the project and tell us, sure. you know, the why behind the project. Yeah. So, um, morphine and mindfulness started when I actually started my paramedic career um, when I started like after I got cut loose on ambulance and you know was writing solo as the provider in the back and I also being an active yoga teacher at the time um, kind of saw like this you know I just just witnessed the similarity between the people who would come in the back of the ambulance with a problem and the people who would come into a yoga studio with a problem and for me you know, like on the, on the medic side, we look to intervene pharmaceutically to address emergency, right? On the yoga side, we intervene more on the mindset, mindfulness aspect to kind of intervene under the same, to solve the same problems. You know, everyone who walks in the back of an ambulance is anxious, which exacerbates probably some condition that they're having on top of whatever other problem is going on. Um, so I, I started honestly originally as a blog where I could just like take these really like dense experiences of trauma and emergency and like try to distill some sort of learning from it for my own benefit. Um, but then realize there is this massive crossover to what we tried to do in our yoga classes of trying to address the stress and anxiety of individuals. And, you know, for me, like having you know, reap the benefit of that in the military, then try to like put together a product for not only potential people that would come into my either ambulance or yoga studio, 
but also for fellow providers and and mm. their ability to manage stress and their ability to you know kind of be the best version of themselves because i mean they're out there every day doing what they do and uh i mean just like we saw in the military with all you know a lot of ptsd a lot of the, the effects of that you know our providers are seeing the same thing so if they can there is a practice out there that is designed several thousand years ago to uh alleviate that and that's what kind of started the whole morphine and mindfulness project so like you know the half is half is science the other half is you know Woo-woo, yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, this is a topic for another day and it's a deep topic. And, uh, Jason and I are still kind of playing around with how to, you know, how to approach this topic, but man, I don't know how bad it is in North Carolina, but Georgia, the suicide rate for paramedics is through the roof. Um, pre-hospital providers in general, not just medics. Um, so, you know, and I think it's a multifaceted problem, obviously. There's multiple reasons why this is happening. But like you're saying, you know, this is, it's really awesome that you're providing an avenue that, uh, that I really think can make a huge difference here. So. Yeah. I, like I said, and that was in the end of the day, it's just me trying to, you know, take everything that I've learned over the last decade plus and just put it to use. Um, I, you know, like, cause, cause again, like people are, like people don't, I guess in, it, we were privileged being where we were at to have the resources that we had at our disposal, you know, as a, as a, you know, tier one, tier two operator in special forces. And we had a staff of individuals who were there to make sure that we were ready to go. I mean, we had physical therapists, we had counselors, we had, I mean, we were required to meet with people like, the whole idea of preventative maintenance for your mental health was huge because, you know, you are a massive investment of the United States government that you came at a, you know, two, $3 million price tag that you now can't break, right? We need you to last as long as you can. But here on this side, on the EMS side, you know, it's like, especially with COVID, you know, COVID has demanded more of EMS than at least as far as I know, talking to people than, ever, you know, people are, we're in, we're in unprecedented times, regardless of how long you've spent in EMS. And there aren't those resources. Like there's, I mean, we, people only have, it seems like each other, you know, and, and some organizations, I mean, yeah, they'll reach out in a, in a crisis, but a lot of people like, you know, but that's, but that's post, right? I mean, that's not pre and, and our, the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to dealing with trauma is what have you done to prepare for that moment, not what you're going to do on the back end of that. So, you know, creating, again, morphine and mindfulness, that was one of the goals with it was to try to provide some kind of like pre-treatment routines, practices using yoga to get you ready to encounter <clears throat> the inevitable trauma that you're going to face every day, you know, and, and not wait till the back end to try to clean that up. Um, because by that time it's already too late, you know? So if you can get ahead of that with developing a solid practice, then you're, you're, I, I don't like the term resilient. I like the term anti-fragile. It's a book, hmm. but I'm like, but I'm like, cause you know, resiliency assumes that you're just coming back to baseline. It's like, if you imagine like the Greek mythological creature of like a Phoenix, you know, it, it explodes into fire and then comes back again, but it never really gets better than it was. 
mm. as opposed to a hydra where you cut off one head and two heads grow in its place. So that that's a creature that the more you subject it to, the better it becomes as opposed to just, just coming back to baseline. So, you know, and I, I think the, the deeper practices of yoga speak to that, right? I mean, the, it's good to be uncomfortable if you've prepared yourself accordingly, because then you will get better. So, Is this something that you use um, in initial education? I mean, have you been able to incorporate this at all into the initial programs? Uh, yes. Um, yes and no, uh, both. So I, you would have died laughing. So I, I did end up teaching my medic class. Once, once my medic teacher found out I was a yoga teacher, <laughs> I, I slowly kind of got her on board, but I did end up teaching yoga classes to my paramedic class. And, nice. you know, I slowly tried to transition them from coming in with like the sheets you know, bag of food or the Chick-fil-A in the morning to like oatmeal and vegetables. How dare and, you take away? Right? I know, I know. <laughs> it's like utter blasphemy, right? Like I'm just. Yeah. Going so back like, to the pirate analogy. That's me. Right. <laughs> right. No, I'm like, so I like, it was like a whole change the culture type thing, which everyone has long since given that up and they're back to, you know, sucking down Chick-fil-A and all the other good stuff. All the chemicals. Uh, but like, but it was something that it was recognized and, and I have come back to teach a couple of one-off classes. Um, I'm actually taking over the, the fit responder program for our organization um, to, to, to try to work that in. Because again, like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I don't think EMS is equipped to handle it to, and meet that need for its providers. And this is something that like, it's, it's just, it's something that's going to have to come from the individual um, and hope for the best. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just unfortunate that so much is demanded of people that there's just a little support structure because it's not, again, like we don't have normal jobs. No. So do not treat, do not treat this like it's a normal job. You know, that's what I told, like when I tell, when I go in to teach the paramedic students now, I'm like, you know, guys, like you have more in common with a professional athlete than you do with like Jake from State Farm who works from nine to five. Like if you treat this like a regular job, you'll be behind the power curve and you will, you will, you might succeed, but you won't be your best self. You know, if you like, that would be like Michael Jordan only practicing free throws when he has to shoot them in a game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, if you really wanted to take this to the next level, which I think like as a profession, that's what we want. Like we want to take paramedicine to the next level. Like you have to treat this like this is, this is it. Like you are, you are a professional athlete. You are a medical provider. Like you are a clinician. Um, and don't consider yourself anything less. And then people will start to hopefully take you a little more seriously. Man, you just pretty much opened a can of worms. We could spend the next three hours. To say, I know, I know. You, you have to come back. <laughs> I will. No, I'd, I'd love well, to come back. Well, because yeah. that's you know that's and I don't know in in your area. I'm, I'm going to assume it's it's the same because I think this is nationwide of this mentality that we have in uh, EMS of everything I need to know I learn in school and after that, right? Hey, it's just coasting. I can't right. imagine, um, especially in special forces, if you guys uh, went by that same attitude no. oh, everything i learned i learned boot camp and then after that no, uh, it's just gravy <laughs> yeah see we i mean that was the thing like that's what people don't they never really realize you know when you watch the cool youtube videos 
you just see the execution. You know, we, as a 12 man team, we shot more rounds than an infantry battalion did in a whole year. Mm -hmm. We get our blood tested for lead levels because we shot so much. Right. And and because, because that, because that's what the job demanded. I mean, you want to, you want to free fall out of an airplane, like the free fall lasts a couple minutes, your rehearsal lasts a couple hours, you know, like, I mean, like this was, this was a full time, fully dedicated, like not a nine to five. And, and, and you can't treat it like that, you know? And, and, and I know, you know, especially the way the whole structure is out there with medical directors who are kind of allowing you to operate under their license. Like you are being forced to demonstrate a level of competency that builds trust that allows you to do all the things that you're supposed to be able to do, you know, but and that's like one thing that, you know, we're, we're kind of pushing hard with in our organization is that, you know, we do these, like we have these skills, you know, the, the your intubations, your surgical crikes that are these really high acuity, low frequency skills. But when you need to be able to do them, like you need to be able to do them. But it's like the training's just not there. You know, like we're sandwiched between two of the best training hospitals in the nation. Yeah. But for some reason, like we just can't tap into that. And like, I don't know why it drives me crazy. So it's like, I'm out. I, I, that's why I pick up my side jobs. I start working in the hospital so I can take advantage of some other resources. And because that's, I mean, if, if you, if, man, if we could actually do hundred percent, all the things that we're supposed to be able to do as a medic, like we're, I mean, we're unstoppable. Oh, we're, absolutely. We're yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, very well said, dude. I, uh, I want you to come back and talk about leadership. I want you to come back and talk about yeah, training man. and education, health and wellness. Like, dude, this is, uh, yeah. if, if you'll come back, I think this is the beginning of something pretty, pretty rad, pretty cool, man. Yeah, I dude, cool. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Like I said, I, uh, like this is my life. Like this is like, I'm not, th- this is what I've kind of picked as my outlet because I, I like being on the ground floor stuff. And despite like how long EMS has been around, like it's still one of those professions that is just rapidly evolving and we can still kind of steer it. You know, we can, we can steer the boat and we can hopefully Absolutely. You know, get this to get this to where it needs to be. And we can do it, I think in our lifetime, you know, cause we've, yeah. it's, it's evolved just that fast. So, but yeah, man, I'd, I'd be down to come back. Just let me know. You got my information. Yeah, how can people find you um, on social media? Yeah. So uh, if you're looking for me on Instagram, it's uh, at voodoo medic. It's, it's the, like the Haitian Creole spelling. Cause V O O D O O was already taken. So it's, you know. and it was like, man, I was like, I, when I wanted to make that, I was like, I was so excited about it. And then like the guy that owns the voodoo medic handle was just not a remarkable page. So I'm like, you waste a great handle. So, it's, <laughs> so, so spell yours again, just to so make it's, sure it's they don't v, find this it, other guy. It's, it's V O D O U medic uh on instagram and then obviously the morphine and mindfulness handle is just at morphine and mindfulness um yeah message me and like i said the the blog's up and running yeah Um, pete everybody read read chris's blog you are a phenomenal writer dude i told you that in the uh whenever we were chatting back and forth you you have a gift in writing you need to you need to write a book seriously yeah i've been i've been told that we'll we'll see um we'll see what happens i well, you have a you have a pretty extensive experience to pull from some memoirs, I think. So, yeah. I started. Well, I started writing. I I 
drunkenly started writing an autobiography when I was in the Q course. It's called it's called Why Is There Trash in the Trash Can? That's it's because you put it there. Like that's, that's very that's well spoken. That's awesome. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.